According to many polls, a great number of Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Because of that, the USCCB has called for a national Eucharistic revival. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, I'll be joined by Bishop Joseph Strickland, and we're going to talk about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and what this Eucharistic revival could look like. Please join us for this conversation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute, and I am joined today by special guest Bishop Joseph Strickland. Thanks for coming on, Bishop Strickland. Thanks, Luke. Good to be here. I remember maybe my very first day of work here, uh, there was a podcast that was being recorded, and I found out uh, about an hour before it that I was going to be on it, and I was super nervous because I had barely gotten a chance to interact with you at all, and uh, I feel much less nervous now to have you on, so three That's years good. makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I uh, know I appreciate you coming on um, today. This is actually the first time I've had you on the podcast where I'm the host and you're the guest, um, and, and so it's really neat to have you here. Uh, I wanted to um, have you on um, to talk about an issue that's important in our diocese, um, but it's also really important just in the church, especially in the United States, um, and that's this Eucharistic revival um, that the USCCB has called for. Um, what what have you sort of been thinking about as, as, as this has been kind of cropping up? Like, what are some of the central things that are, that are in your mind where we need to be going with, with the Eucharistic revival? Well, thank you, Luke. Um, as you know, we had the year of the Eucharist and the Immaculate Virgin Mary uh, last year, and so I, I fully agree that we need to revive and strengthen and deepen our Eucharistic faith, our really what I would call our Eucharistic walk with the Lord. And so um, I think the the things we can and should do are almost limitless to enrich and focus on liturgy and all the forms and to focus on the Word of God because that is um, the same Jesus. He's Word incarnate. I think we need to emphasize that so that people, specifically with the Mass, but even how we live our Eucharistic faith, that Word of God is nurturing that as mm. His real presence in yeah. the the sacrament of the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So I, I literally could go on and on <laughs> about ways we can revive Eucharist, certainly through adoration, through greater reverence, through helping children to, to really not just celebrate their first communion, but mm. to really um, keep that alive and recognize that every time we see, receive the Lord is, is a moment of tremendous grace and yeah. opportunity. Um, we hear a lot about knowing Christ and really um, having a relationship with him. 
And I think the Eucharist is a great way to do that for to help people understand that the same Jesus we're hearing in the gospel at that mass yeah. or reading about maybe in a Bible study, it's the same Jesus we're receiving. Yeah, I think it's great that you mentioned uh, the importance of the Word of God, of the Scriptures. Um, that, you know, we, we we look at Jesus as Word, um, but and sacrament, right? Like that that emphasis that we have, that dual emphasis as Catholics. There's a there's a passage in the in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the section about Scripture, which actually says that we should be nourished on the Word of God as we are nourished on His body. Um, so even the Catechism, in its discussion of of Scripture, uses that language of nourishing our spiritual life, nourishing our souls on the written Word of God. Uh, but then also, of course, as Catholics, we have that opportunity to receive Him, um, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the sacrament. Uh, so I guess it, uh, uh, an important distinction would be for, for you that we, we need um, formation that can improve our understanding of the Eucharist, but we also have to, to develop a, a piety in practice, right? And, and it's, I think sometimes in catechesis or, or, you know, when you're dealing with either a parish or a diocese, it's kind of easy to focus on one of those things. But uh, my sense is that for a, a real Eucharistic revival, we can't just say, well, go to adoration um, or, you know, read about the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, right? Those those both have to nourish one another. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, Luke. Um, and I think it's very important to realize that developing a deeper Eucharistic th- theology is really about knowing Jesus Christ more deeply. Yeah. I, that is the point. And, and I think to you know, it, our goal is not, uh, at least my goal as a bishop, is not for everyone to have the most pristine theological uh, concept of Eucharist. The goal is to have a deeper relationship yeah. with the Son of God incarnate among us, Jesus Christ, who is really present. Um, just to share a little story that I've shared many times, but... Um, Several years ago, when I was a priest at the cathedral, called to the hospital, and a beautiful, it was a, a Hispanic woman, but she, she actually spoke to me in English, um, and older woman, just really uh, very ill, and she had asked to, to receive uh, communion. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went in, and she greeted me and you know, thanked me for coming. But I just love the what, what she said. Very simple, but very, I, obviously I remember it after all these years. <laughs> yeah. But she said, did you bring him? And I, I just thought that was a beautiful way. Mm. It just showed me that she had a real Eucharistic theology. Right. But more deeply, and most importantly, a real relationship with him. Yeah. with Jesus Christ. Did you bring him? It just was a beautiful way, and it, it really had quite an impact on me. And I think we've that's what we have to keep emphasizing. As we talk about the Scriptures, um, I think many times we can kind of forget, even though we probably studied, or maybe we don't know the, the basic history, but certainly the Church received what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the sure. Genesis, the Pentateuch, the, the prophets, uh, all of those books of what we call the Old Testament. But I think it's important to remember as we talk about this relationship with the living mm-hmm. person of Jesus Christ, the church had Eucharist. 
before it had the New Testament. That's right. The New Testament was developed out of, and I think it's beautiful for all of us to reflect on. I mean, the early church fathers talk about the the development of what we call the Mass, the Eucharistic liturgy, and the readings that were being mm-hmm. proclaimed, really growing out of that experience what came to be canonized in the canon of Scripture right. to be the New Testament four Gospels. You're probably aware that there were other Gospels. And in this context, I would th- encourage all of us to realize, just like any person, I mean, there are people that know Luke Arredondo, and there are people that really know you, like your wonderful wife and your kids are getting to know Dad. <laughs> um, but there might be someone that says, oh, yeah, I knew, know Luke Arredondo, and they say some things It's like, Elena says, that doesn't fit. That's not, right. that's not the Luke I know. Yeah. And I think that's where the Gospels developed. There were communities and individual, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, representing communities. And they were considered, they said, yes, that's him. Mm-hmm. And it, it really was all about, are they authentic to the Jesus Christ that we knew? Because yeah. there were people still, as all that's developing, certainly it took a couple of centuries at least, um, but there were people that still had had personal contact with either Jesus himself or the apostles right. or one of the disciples. So they said, no, that's not really Jesus or yes. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yeah. the letters of Paul, all of the New Testament is people saying, this is authentic yeah. to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to the Jesus we know, to, yeah. to the faith. And I think that's a beautiful reminder, even as we talk about Eucharist, that it was really Eucharist first, right? And then it was from Eucharist, from knowing Him, yeah, from being fed by Him and the yeah. wondrous grace of the Eucharist, that an understanding of how to tell His story in the New Testament really developed in the life of the Church. That's right. In the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter twenty-four, we have the story of the road to Emmaus, and uh, there's this beautiful, you know, description of Jesus. He, he comes along these two disciples who are walking, and, and they don't know who he is, and and they're all distraught and downcast about everything that's happened in these past few days, just describing Christ's passion. And uh, Jesus joins them, says, "You know what's going on?" And they say, "Are you the, are you the only, the only traveler to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken past pa- taken part in these days?" And they recount for him everything, and they're all forlorn about it and and just depressed because they thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but then he died. And, of course, they don't realize he's there in their midst, but he corrects them and says, do you not know what it what was said of me in the Scriptures? And it says, in, and I love in Luke's Gospel, it's, it recounts as, beginning with Moses, he, he, he recounts to them everything that was, that, that was foretold in the Scriptures concerning him. Mm-hmm. And, and it points us to the Old Testament, um, and, and it's, it's absolutely right, right? This is the third day. Jesus' method of teaching who he was was to go to the Scriptures, which at that time is just the Old Testament. Um, and, and I think you, you bring up a really good point about, you know, this, this woman's faith, and did you bring him? I'm like, that's really beautiful. I actually haven't heard you tell that story before, um, but it's a really beautiful story. Uh, there's, there's a distinction between, you know, being able to articulate a Eucharistic theology and, and knowing the God who comes to us in the Eucharist. And um, for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, like, they had known Jesus— Somewhat, right? Maybe not well enough to realize that even through his death, he still has the victory. Um, but 
Jesus brings them back to the Old Testament. And, and what I think is great about that is the Old Testament, especially the Exodus story, right, which we read now in the season of Lent, we're in Lent now, it's, it's all in the Liturgy of the Hours, is, is going back to Exodus. It describes the God who loves Israel so much that he's willing to go to all these great lengths to save them. And then in the New Testament, Jesus reveals that love even further by saying, I will give myself to you as food. So in the Old Testament, we had manna. Now you can eat my body. And Jesus, when he describes the Eucharist in John 6, says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. And I, I think it's great for us as Catholics to know that scripture and to to, to know Jesus himself, right? And if we don't know the Old Testament at all, it's going to be harder for us to understand what Jesus means by they ate the manna in the desert, but they died. So um, I, I really love um, what you said, that, that Eucharist precedes the New Testament, mm. um, and out of it comes the New Testament. That's what Scott Hahn's point is in, in his book, Consuming the Word. He says over and over in that book that um, the Eucharist was a sacrament before uh, or the, the New Covenant, rather, was a sacrament before it was a document according to the document. Yeah. Uh, I remember he said it so many times that just like that phrase got stuck in my in my head, but that's, yeah. that's beautiful. I love the uh, Emmaus story, too, and it, it makes me think of the uh, Transfiguration, where once again, mm-hmm. it's Old Testament figure, figures, Moses and Elijah, that Christ is talking yeah. to, as Peter, James, and John are saying. What's going on here? <laughs> and I think that Christ is, and how often does he quote the prophet Isaiah or other passages from Scripture? I love, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but um, I repeat myself. So <laughs> if, if I have, great. If not, it's new. But uh, a concept that from prayer and just reading Scripture, uh, you know, I love St. Joseph, of course, as uh, uh, my namesake, my patron saint, a great model. And, you know, the consecration to St. Joseph has been popular in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I love the idea of St. Joseph holding Jesus in one arm and holding a scroll of the Old Testament in another arm mm. and He's got the Word of God in both arms, yeah. Word incarnate and the Word that told us all about the Word yeah. incarnate that would come. I mean, just the, yeah. the interplay there, uh, Dr. Brent Petrie does beautiful work. Um, I would recommend it for Eucharistic theology to understand the Mass better, to, sure. to understand its connection to that Old Testament story, yeah. Moses and so Abraham and Isaac as well. I yeah. mean, throughout the Old Testament, it's all pointing to what we have the, the blessing of being part of is sure. the Christian era, the time when the Christ has come, yeah. and going back to the Eucharist to re- recognize. That's what I always try to emphasize. And I think one of the things about the Eucharistic revival is to get to the point where people recognize this is a, a huge part of the fulfillment of Christ's promise. I will be with you until the end of the age. Yeah. Just down the hall in this chancery building in our little chapel, he's with us yeah. in that Eucharistic presence. And so that interplay between word and sacrament and the real presence of a person that the disciples definitely lived with, right. we are, are called to that same relationship. Yeah. So one of the things that's um, also coinciding with the, with the Eucharistic <clears throat> revival, it, it's it's uh, you know really beginning now in, in many dioceses across the country is uh, a, a reconsideration or or returning to 
um, administration of the Eucharist under both species, the, the body and the blood. Obviously, with with COVID, in in as far as I as far as I'm aware, every diocese the, the, the Eucharist was being distributed just under under the the, the species of the body, the the host, right? Um, and now different dioceses are beginning either to say, okay, let's let's think about this and how we want to move forward with this, or they're re- returning to you know having the, the the chalice as an option at mass. Um, what's uh, what's your sense of kind of how how the Eucharistic revival is, is sort of coinciding with this discussion? I mean, what, what what do you think is the important thing in that conversation? You know, you're a bishop; you've got to make decisions for a diocese. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what what's kind of influencing your your way of thinking about it? Well, really, Luke, um, I'm a broken record coming to, for the Eucharist, we need a deeper reverence. Yeah. And going back to what we've already talked about, a deeper deeper reverence for him, for his real presence there, that personal connection. Just like, you know, if if some very important person walks in, people are going to, you know, people will stand or they will acknowledge that person. Mm -hmm. I think we have to develop that mindset that when we're in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, we're in the presence of Christ in a great mystery that it's hard to sort through all of that. But I think we've got to really enrich that understanding. And in that context, to recognize body and blood, I mean, that's how we're made up. I mean, we're here, two men living beings here because we have body and blood. And And I think that it's interesting. I know some of the scripture scholars look at, and you're much more scripture scholar than I am, but (laughs) I've read some of the the discussion of the actual language Jesus uses and and words like gnawing and Mm -hmm. chewing and really eating and being nurtured by the Eucharist. That's what in John 6, that's the kind of language that Christ uses. And so in that context, and and I appreciate the work you've helped me with, with understanding where does the communion under both species fit mm-hmm. into our liturgical life. And I think what I've understood, and, and I've learned a lot just from the research you've done, because we tend to just sort of do what we've been told and we right. receive it. But if we look at how it was introduced, the idea of receiving both the body of Christ and the precious blood, the, the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine, it was meant to be a highlight, a, yeah. a special moment, a significant feast. There's not just an everyday thing. Sure. And I think that that's what I don't want to lose yeah. as we look at how do we bring it back. I, certainly, I fully intend in some form to bring that opportunity to have that experience. Right. But I think to make sure that it doesn't become everyday because— I mean, as two Catholic men, I know I'm twice your age about, but it's easy for it to become routine. Mm-hmm. And I think anytime we can pull ourselves back from the routine, that's what we need to do. And interestingly, the way the it was introduced originally, it was certainly, I mean, you no-brainer, Feast of Corpus Christi, have yeah. communion offered under both species yeah. uh, for confirmation or for First Eucharist for children. Yeah. But key moments to sure. to highlight. I, I guess that's the word that I would like to emphasize is that it should be highlighted. And yeah. even encouraging people spiritually. I mean, as we say in the Mass, 
None of us are worthy. I'm a bishop, and I'm not worthy yeah. to receive the eternal Son of God in the form of consecrated bread and wine. But it's it's part of my work as a bishop and as a priest. And it's part of the work for all of us as to be in communion is to receive communion, yeah. and to make sure that we're properly disposed to do so. So we need to, I believe, really help people understand that even, you know, to maybe look at it as, to take the opportunity to receive, to just make your own personal choice, however it's offered in sure. the church, to receive under both species, maybe right after you've gone to confession or as a special mm. celebration of something. Let's yeah. say, you know, just for example, uh, a husband and wife are celebrating their wedding anniversary, sure. either that Sunday or close to that yeah. date, to say, let's really prepare ourselves to receive body and blood, to yeah. celebrate our anniversary, things like that on your birthday, but to to use it as sure. an opportunity to really highlight the wondrous gift of the Eucharist and not let it kind of slip back into it. My experience, I mean, when I was ordained a priest, anytime you had Mass, it was expected that sure. you would have, at least in the culture of this area, and it's yeah. the only place I've been as a priest, but... You were expected if you, you know, having a mass for a school on a retreat, you're going to have— You're going to bring, bring enough both wine species. for— Yeah. You know, there was just no question. You would have uh, the body of Christ offered and then a couple of chalices or cups right. um, that were offered as well. But I think we need to pull back from that yeah. and really make it something and say, wow, I've prepared for this. And it's really a deeper—it's yeah. a respect, again, for Jesus, right. for the person of Christ, and to really enhance that respect yeah. rather than making it feel something routine and common that we, sure. we kind of lose focus on. Yeah. I think uh, the, the, the discussion about receiving under both species, even the fact that bishops around the country in different dioceses uh, are having that conversation and are asking <laughs> questions about— Okay, COVID seems, I hope to God, to be behind us enough that we can we can think about going back to quote-unquote normal, but there's there's a question about, like, wh what was normal prior to COVID? Is that the best thing to do? Do we just go back to how things were? Or do we, you know, kind of approach things um, differently? Um, and, and as you mentioned, you you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research, and we've, we've had conversations about this um, just as part of part of our the normal, you know, work that I'm doing here. Um, and something that I came across in reading the documents of Vatican II um, is the document on the liturgy, uh, and you hinted at this, but I just want to read it briefly, um, actually has this to say about the reception under both species. So it says, uh, this is paragraph 55 of the document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, says that more perfect form of participation in the Mass, whereby the faithful, after the priest's communion, receive the Lord's body from the same sacrifice, is strongly recommended. The dogmatic principles which were laid down by the Council of Trent remaining intact, communion under both kinds, listen, may be granted when the bishop thinks when the bishops think fit, not only to clerics and religious, but also to the laity, in cases to be determined by the apostolic see, as for instance, to the newly ordained in the mass of their sacred ordination, to the newly professed in the mass of their religious profession, and to the newly baptized in the mass which follows their baptism. Um, and obviously, you know, we can't have a whole conversation about uh, the documents of Vatican II and then, you know, like what happened after the council. Um, that's a, a different conversation. But this particular point, the document is saying 
essentially, at Trent, there was a lot of reasons to be concerned about whether or not we're going to give communion under both species. Basically, the issue was there were a lot of people who believed that you had to receive body and blood or you weren't getting a full communion. You're getting 0.5 communion for body and 0.5 for blood, and you get both of them, that's, you, you know, you've received communion. And so the church wanted to say, no, the presence of Christ is fully there in a speck of the host or a droplet of, of the blood, uh, or a speck of the body or a droplet of the blood. We're going to teach that by saying, you just receive under the host. That's, wh- that's what we're going to do, and you, and you will know that that's full communion. You've received everything that you can receive in, in communion. But at Vatican II, there wasn't as much—by that point, there wasn't as much concern that you know, people thought we needed both. So maybe we could consider, under these really, you know, uh, a small number of circumstances, allowing the reception of, of both. And I think that that's really—that that's a, a, a really prudent decision. Um, and of course, you know, that's for in most places, that's not what happened. But that's when we're thinking in American context— Right, I've uh, I've spent a little bit of time in Mexico, and um, when I was living there, I I had no idea that there were just places where you just don't get to receive the blood. Um, and so, in Mexico for a summer, every time I went to mass, at first it was daily masses, and, and it was just the body. And I thought, well, it's a daily mass. So when I go on Sunday, you know, they have the chalice, and then and they didn't, and they continued to not have it. And by the time I went home, where I could have the chalice anytime I wanted, then I really thought, oh, this is really great, you know. And so there's some there's some wisdom there, and and the church saying sometimes to receive both. And and I like that. I mean, to think of the significance of these three examples that the the, the liturgy document gives. Yeah. The ordination of a priest, the profession of a religious, or someone who has just been baptized, right? That's not saying every Sunday or every daily Mass. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's you know, a, a lot more sort of reserved circumstances, um, and, and, I, and I think that uh, it's—this is a good time, you mm-hmm. know, for, for dioceses around the—for bishops around the world to really reconsider, okay— What's the what's the goal here? You know, with having you, the Eucharist under uh, under both species available, how often do we want to do it? And I think you gave some good examples of when we might consider that. Yeah, and I think that is it is important to, for a um, a deeper relationship or a deeper experience. One thing, um, as I was talking earlier about the you know the actual language that Christ uses, it's it's pretty earthy <laughs> fleshy yeah. uh, i mean it's it's not it's not you know as pristine as we might in our sensibilities prefer but i think it really gets to the point that this is essential food for your spiritual journey yeah i mean that's what christ tells us you must drink right eat my body and drink my blood and in that context i think it's important and this really just through my own prayer and reflection on this um it came to me, and it, it really is something that I, I want to emphasize for all of us to remember when when you're talking about flesh of, of whatever kind. I mean, mm-hmm. flesh is, is meat. Is um, We're carnivores. We eat meat. I mean, sure. and certainly our bodies, you know, when you have a piece of flesh, there's always blood present. I mean, it's, it's like they do go together. Even if you think about the biology of, I mean, I'm no biologist, but <laughs> Me you know, the, the the blood vessels in our bodies get to the point where they are feeding 
the, the, the blood vessels bring blood and nourishment to every cell in the body. Yeah. If a cell's not getting fed through blood, it's going to die. Yeah. And I think that that intimate connection between flesh and blood, there is no flesh without blood. Right. And I think that's even way back in Trent, that's what they were getting at and emphasizing that when you receive the body of Christ, you're receiving the blood of Christ. And, and even the other, uh, the reverse of that, I would say, I'm no biologist again, but I would think in, in typical circumstances, when you have blood, there are going to be some cells of flesh mm-hmm. in that blood. So it's like it's inextricably linked together yeah. in the person. And again, it brings us back to the real person that we're receiving. And so I've encouraged people to to really pray about and reflect on, even that though they, in a sense, since COVID, people, and some people have mentioned to me that they really are anxious to be able to receive the blood of Christ mm-hmm. again. In this kind of fasting from the blood, you could yeah. say, yeah. to realize hey, I've been receiving the body of Christ, therefore I've been receiving the blood as well. Yeah. Not in an experiential way. We haven't right. received consecrated wine, but when we receive the body, we're receiving the blood as well. And I think just to me that was helpful, and it, it really was something that I was um, appreciated of recognizing that in a sense we've never had a fast of sure. the, the blood of Christ. Right. But certainly that... Um, the the fuller experience of actually taking a sip from a chalice of consecrated wine, the yeah. blood of Christ, it you know as human beings, yes, it right. it it does highlight it, and I think for again I use that word, but I think for that reason to make it special occasions and mm-hmm. not an everyday thing. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe uh you know we're in the year of baptism here now in the diocese of Tyler. Uh, maybe another way that we could think of it is that you know that the church gives us different ways in which someone can be baptized. Right? They can be baptized by a full immersion. Uh, or they can be baptized by by pouring, you know, three times and and saying, you know, saying the baptismal formula, and in both of those cases, um, you get a little bit of a different picture, like visually and and theologically, of of you know what's going on in this sacrament, and mm-hmm. and the the full immersion maybe captures more of the image of the, the baptism as a death. And that we're rising to a new life. Um, I've, I've been reading a lot about baptism because it's a year of baptism this year, and you said, "Hey, uh, read about baptism, teach people about it." Uh, early baptismal fonts often depicted on the outside of the font a tomb, uh, and that was because we there was this pretty clear understanding when when everyone is celebrating baptism all the time by immersion, especially if you're an adult. It can be like a scary experience, like, oh, I don't want to be down here too long. You know, we, we know that if we're underwater too long, we could die, right? So it, it, that, it, it, that's, that's true. You're, you're dying. Uh, you're putting to death, St. Paul says, the old man, right? And that's captured really well in immersion and maybe not as well by pouring or by sprinkling if you're, if you're, if you're doing uh, the baptism under a slightly different uh, you know, application of the rite. And to receive the body only at Mass— Surely you're receiving the grace of the Eucharist. If you receive the body and the blood, maybe it's a more full symbol. Yeah. Maybe there's something that that's, comes out a little bit more clearly. But neither one of those uh, excludes the other, and sure. and neither one of those must be the way that it's done. Yeah. Um, they're they're both 
you know, allowable and, and their options. So that's just something that just kind of came to mind as, as you were talking. Um, okay, well, uh, I, I we've kind of run out of time, but I want to thank you for, for coming on and uh, for, for being here. Um, we're, we're really uh, grateful uh, here in the diocese to, to have you, you among us, and uh, this, this year of baptism, I think, is a really good opportunity for us to think differently about another sacrament, and I know you've already been on the podcast to talk about that, but maybe we'll have you on uh, again in the year to, to talk about what the year of baptism has been like for you sure. kind of on the other end. So thanks for coming, Bishop. Thanks, Luke. God bless. <laughs>